It takes a lot to create impactful TV ads. This is why Thinkbox is going beyond the box with a brand new podcast series that gets the lowdown from the winners of 2023's TV Planning Awards on The Secret Sauce. Don't miss out. Find Beyond the Box on Spotify now. Hello, welcome to the Campaign Podcast. My name is Matt Barker. I'm the featured editor of Campaign. And in today's Super Soroy Sports Special, I'm joined by Jenny Mitten from MNC Saatchi, Jenny's managing partner and women's sport lead. Hello, Jen. Good morning. Also joining us today is Will Moe, who just last month was named the first senior vice president of Experiential in Europe at marketing agency 160 over 90. Hello and congratulations, Will. Hi, Matt. And finally, Melissa Robertson, who's CEO of Dark Horses. Hello, Melissa. Hi, Matt. Now, this year promises to be a great one for sports fans, unless, like me, you're a long-suffering Crystal Palace supporter. We've got the Paris Olympics, the European Football Championships. I believe there's also the Copa America and all the various annual Blue Ribbon events in between. The way we consume sports continues to change. There was a slightly depressing report recently that found that 40% of Gen Z respondents didn't watch sport at all, and those that do are less inclined to watch full events, preferring snippets on social or other platforms. It's rarely about the live moment. It's about the stuff that happens around sporting events, the backstories. And that's how these athletes become fully rounded characters, if you like. And YouTube's always the biggie. There's also the idea that these digi native fans are much more likely to bond with individuals as much as teams. That they can buy an into Miami messy shirt without feeling any great affection for the club. That's something that's pretty alien for a dyed-in-the-wool fan like me, i.e. someone from an older generation. But it is quite a marked shift. So I wanted to kick things off, no pun intended, wanted to kick things off today by just asking how the nature of sport fandom has changed, are things becoming a little more niche, and how can brands or can brands still launch campaigns that talk to a mass audience? Jen, I don't know if you wanted to take that one to start off with. I would love to. It's really interesting, isn't it, looking at, because actually it's less about the demographic changing and more about behaviours. I mean, we for years we've talked about fandom. I think everybody has, but that's everyone behaving as a mass, um, following one thought, following one behaviour. And we know for, you know, modern day consumers, that isn't how they get involved with sport and engage with sport. So we actually coined a new term called fancom. Uh, which is all around fan communities and how they come together and they have intersectional passions and they like to be more authors of the space they're inhabiting rather than being told what to do and what to think. And as a result, we see these sort of groups of fans that grow and shrink and behave and show up in different spaces and are actually quite flexible and malleable. So I know as a marketing you know, world, we get a bit nervous when people's behaviours change, but actually it's a really exciting opportunity. Well, it, does that sort of dovetail with your experiences, particularly with how you're dealing with clients? Yeah, and I think... Just to add on onto that, I suppose you've got the, you know, the social media platforms and you know, TikToks of this world where all these niche and micro communities are rising. And I think brands are getting a bit clever about how to target them and also realize that those platforms, you know, have immense follower bases and the sort of algorithms, et cetera. So it can then blow out into something that's a, you know, taking it something very niche and, and making it, making it very huge is a lot easier than it used to be for. Big brands like Nike, we did a, a big dance thing for them recently. And you know, the different niches of those dance communities, you bring them together and then suddenly it explodes into something really huge and they um, you know, they can tap into that. Yeah. And, and Melissa? You know, sport is one of those um, single cultural moments that still brings millions and millions of people together. You know, we've just, aside from, you know, rural funerals, it's, you know, one of the things that brings us together. And, you know, look at the Super Bowl the other week. 
you know, biggest viewership in the US that they've had ever, 123 million people of which half of them were women. And you're seeing a lot of sort of, you know, women's brands coming into it. The demographics for the younger audiences were up for the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I mean, definitely it's way more fragmented and the way that people experience it and want to experience it is definitely changing, but it's still huge. Does that, you mentioned the Super Bowl there. I mean, it, it always seems to me that American sports have a bit of an advantage with, with the rest of the world because they're so kind of regimented is not really the word, but they're segmented, aren't they? They'll, they'll be sort of like a minute of action and then there'll be a break and then, you know, it'll, it'll reset. Football, NFL is the obvious one, baseball as well, but also NBA. Is, is that something that you, you kind of experience as well or, you know, you would agree with? I'm going to do a classic thing and answer a slightly different question. Sure, yeah. Because I'm a bit obsessed with it. You know, there was a bit of research about engagement in both the actual game for the Super Bowl and the entertainment around it. And there's evidence to suggest that actually, and surprisingly, women are not only more engaged in the entertainment side of things, they're more engaged in the game, which I sort of, you know, go figure as a bloke. Why is that the case? I would argue that it's there's there's, you know, There's just a lot of posturing, you know, when these kind of games are going on, you know, lots of chat about, you know, who knows most. And women are like, I just want to watch what's going on. So, yeah, I've I've answered a different question, but yeah, interesting. I mentioned sort of demographics. I mentioned Gen Z there, obviously, uh, and about Digi Natives. Is something else going on as well? Is it is it that a younger generation is feeling perhaps a bit priced out as well, perhaps? I think from an experience point of view, I think what's been happening is that, you know, that, that younger generation still want those experiences, not necessarily have the money to invest in huge products, et cetera, but brands are having to sort of accommodate that, that younger audience with, with the experiences that they're doing more and more and more. There's always going to be a, a younger generation coming through, so it's always going to be evolving and changing. And, and Jen, is that starting to feed through into the way the rest of us are consuming sports and and by definition how brands are having to sort of behave as well i think so i think actually women's sport is a really good test bed of this right and you know, we talked about the fact that fans like to have some sort of ownership in the space or inhabiting like to have a role women's sports a great example because there's no set culture everyone's like moving into the space and fans are like working out what it means to them what their role is and brands are doing the same so everyone's kind of coming together and creating this experience and they feel part of that and that is really powerful and i think that's why we say you know I'm sure we'll comment on this as well. I know Melissa from your work as well. You know, whilst we're seeing big TV numbers for women's sport, they actually skew a lot older. When we get into the stadiums and social activations, it's really young. That's where Gen Z are showing up because A, they really value experiences. You know, this generation were hit really hard by COVID. It was a key point of their kind of growing up that they couldn't do have those experiences. So they're coming out really strong now, but they want to co-author. And whilst in men's sports, it's quite set structures and ways of doing things. Women's sports, they can come into the space, work with the brands, work with the rights holders and create what this culture looks like. And that's what attracts Gen Z. And I think that's what we see a bit more in American sports. They're a bit bolder and they, they don't get so set in their ways about crossing over into the passions. They're really open to it. Where I think in the UK, we're very rightly proud of a set culture and we don't like to, you know, we don't want to bring entertainment into our wonderful football. But actually this generation, you know, they're up for doing things a bit differently. And I think women's sports showing it's working. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the last couple of international tournaments, the women's football tournaments have really opened up this because, especially this idea of conversations around events. I think the women's game has managed to keep hold of its grassroots in, in a way that the men's game hasn't. It's, it's sort of rather lost that in amongst all the hype and, and, and everything else that surrounds the Premier League. It has kind of set a template, hasn't it, I suppose? 
it really has. It's it's a template, but it's an evolving template. Mm. And the template is going to change. If you look at what's happening in schools, so Barclays and the FA are making sure every girl can get access to football in schools. Now, the result of that, if you look at 13-year-olds, they can now play football at school, which the previous generations couldn't. And also they're seeing women being paid to be footballers and be in the football space. It will be a fascinating social experiment to see what happens in 10 years time with this whole generation for them just playing football's normal, working in football's normal and how that changes changes and opens up the space. And I think it you know, probably will, Matt, start to move more towards the men's space where everything does become more closed off as it gets bigger and more money comes in. Do you think, Jenny, I was going to say that on that with the, with the almost sort of the money coming into it, the professionalisation. I always remember when rugby became professional. It was a sport that I used to play, but I never had any aspirations of doing it as a career because there was never any money in it. But that will change that everyone's viewpoints towards it. Young girls, now I've got an eight-year-old girl who loves her football, and she'll be able to see there's a career in, 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 in that and it's completely change her aspirations probably. Oh, completely. I'll tell you a really tragic story. When I was 11, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan, as we say my age. When I was 11 in careers day, I said I wanted to be Stuart Pearce's wife because I hadn't seen <laughs> any other women involved with the club. And this was before WAGS. How tragic is that? Where now young girls, look, even if you don't want to be in football, the incredible soft skills you get as a result, so things like confidence, teamwork, skills that men will get naturally from playing football at school and actually really apply to leadership roles in any industry down the line. So, you know, whilst football, if we can get more women working and playing football, great, access to football is, is a bigger benefit. So you could have been Mrs. Psycho. Mrs. Psycho, you know, that would be great for the TV. Apparently Stuart Pearce's wife once got a phone call from the club saying that he'd broken uh, he'd broken a leg and she replied, who's? <laughs> Which I was... It's <laughs> why he was my favourite player, Matt. <laughs> Sorry to disturb your podcast. I'm John Harrington, editor of PR Week UK. Anyone interested in the worlds of PR, communications and reputation management should check out Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. Each episode tackles a big issue in comms, whether that's the latest corporate crisis, issues around client agency relationships or what's next for AI and PR. We also have an offshoot called Noise in Brief, which delves into the news in a bite-sized format. So check out Beyond the Noise wherever you get your podcasts. Melissa, I wanted to bring you in and ask you about the Olympics. I don't want to sound too naive here, but obviously that's an event that has grassroots, but it's still a massive kind of cash cow, isn't it? And and, and everything else. But news broke recently that LVMH, the big luxury holding company, are going to be getting involved in, in, in Paris this summer. Is that a sign of things changing as well? Or, or, or is there anything else you're looking forward to with, with, with Paris? Oh my God. I mean, I can't wait. I, I, I love the Olympics because I love, I love sort of getting, you know, finding yourself at sort of midnight watching some random sport that you don't understand at all. And then the next day pretending you can sort of, you know, talk about exactly what happened and why and who you wanted to win and why. And it probably isn't anyone from your own country. So yeah, the, the actual Olympics, but yeah, LVMH thing is really interesting. I mean, Bernard Arnault is clearly, you know, wanting to put fingers in lots of pies and they have such a broad and diverse range of brands. And you can see all of the, you know, work that they're starting to sort of put out, you know, the artisans of all victories and, you know, building on their sort of art of crafting dreams. And, you know, that that's that's really arguably true of what the Olympics, you know, brings to its athletes. You know, it is the the ultimate stage. 
So I think it's a very interesting partnership. I mean, you sort of you talked about it being a bit, you know, swanky, and you know, clearly it's, um, you know, they're quite expensive brands. But actually, it feels to me like a really interesting partnership because not only are they based in France, they've got all of these different brands, and they're trying to show their partnership across lots of different sort of sports and events. Um, I think it's quite exciting. I'll be quite interested to see how they build on it. Will, do you share that excitement? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm not that surprised that LVMH are getting involved. The luxury consumer has, has, has changed. They want to experience the luxury brands up close. So luxury brands showing up in different spaces, and I think we'll see more of that, you know, forging unexpected sort of partnerships and collaborations to get to that new consumer. And then you think, you know, there's people like Visa there. So there's a huge amount of customers there. Um, you know, you can see someone like, LVMH teaming up with a visa or, or whoever would be the sort of uh, you know, the banking sponsor of one of these one of these events, and you can see how it could make perfect sense, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen, in the old days, we used to get things like guerrilla marketing. I think it was Adidas that used to sort of put little signs up during marathons that were sponsored by Nike and and, and all this sort of stuff going on. How do brands, you know, smaller brands that aren't the LVMHs, the Visas, and so on, how can they get that association? with the Olympics, the digital platforms, is, is that one possible outlet? It definitely is. I think it's more less about the channel and more about the idea and your role around the Olympics. What can your brand do to enhance the experience for fans to have a natural role be part of the conversation? And then you can, you know, hijacking. I'm really pro hijacking, why not? I think for a long-term, if you're a brand wanting to make long-term impact with an audience, then I think partnerships are key because you have to build that relationship over time. But if you want to test the water and see, could this be a space for me? I don't think there's anything to cover your ears, IOC. You know, hijacking's great. If anything, it's really great for these, um, I guess, big sporting events because we get lots of cynicism around, you know, Gen Z are just on social. No one cares about the events. Actually, everyone really does. And when you have loads of brands hijacking your event, wanting to get involved, it just shows, to Melissa's point, how big and important and relevant they are. So, you know, I think it's a great way to test, but if you want a to really get into an audience long term, those partnerships are really key. Mm-hmm. Melissa, you were nodding there. Yeah, I love the hijacking too. And, you know, you've got to, you know, we were all in the UK for 2012 when, you know, Nike did its, you know, hijacking of that and, you know, created all of those little London things, you know, which I think sort of got it into a bit of trouble. But, you know, I think the vast majority of people actually came out of that thinking that Nike was the sponsor. So, but you can be super smart and really capture the imagination and and almost everyone likes an underdog so if you are hijacking it you know you're going to get people jumping on board but it can also backfire because you know look at you know brew dog who sort of you know position themselves as the proud anti-sponsor and then everybody's you know was slightly looking at them going but were you (laughs) so yeah it's a very very difficult tightrope and you have to really sort of understand how your brand can enter the fray well, are there any other sort of pitfalls about getting involved in, in, in a large sports event like this? I was just going to um, quickly mention that those Nike uh, experiences aged me by several years. Uh, <laughs> I delivered those back in 2012. Jenny, were you were you were engine then as well, weren't you? I was, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was, Remember it well. Uh, sorry, what was it? I've, I've lost a train of thought now, Matt. What was the? No, uh, no, it, it was just say. Are there any other pitfalls? I guess there's all the sort of classic stuff, isn't there? Tone of voice, messaging, and 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 so on. Um, maybe we could talk a bit about that because obviously a couple of weeks after the Super Bowl, a lot of talk about humour coming back. What sort of messaging do you think is going to be most effective this summer? 
there's new sports in there. I know we had uh, skateboarding last time, but we've got, I think we've got break dancing, sport mm. climbing, surfing, skateboarding, all sports that I think would allow that more of a humorous approach, wouldn't they? And a sort of more relaxed and uh, less sort of formal, stringent, uh, you know, team-based sort of attitude. So I think that there's huge opportunities in those sort of niche and smaller sports to do some really, really fun, good, you know, fun stuff. My kids are obsessed with the idea of there being skateboarding at the Olympics. So um, I think I think you see a lot of smaller brands maybe concentrating on on, on those sort of areas of like as a, an access a, a way in. They did some great skateboard kits, didn't they, last time out? Was it Tokyo? They did some fabulous stuff, actually. It'd be interesting to see if that kind of collaboration happens a lot more. The crossover between sports and streetwear is obviously long established, uh, whether it becomes a bit more of a shop window for that. I think there's a, a really interesting point about your comments on on humour and comedy, because, you know, we've seen a couple of years of, you know, a lot of very purpose-driven comms. And I think brands can find it quite hard to know what their point of view is. And so, yeah, a bit like BrewDog, they're sort of jumping on a bandwagon that they don't necessarily have the credibility to do. So perhaps it's just a bit safer almost to fall back into humour. But it does also feel as if you know, Paris is an opportunity to have a point of view on the world. You know, it's going to be the, you know, greenest Olympics that's, you know, that's that's ever happened. So it's not as if we shouldn't embrace some of those sort of perhaps more serious messages. You know, we've talked a lot about how sport and politics are inextricably entwined. You know, how do brands navigate that and find a comfortable place on on that landscape about what they can what they can and shouldn't talk about? Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to end this with a fairly general, fairly obvious question, really. But what are you most looking forward to? It doesn't have to be anything, really, in terms of messaging or advertising or so on, on on the pitch, in in the stadiums, in the arenas. Oh, I think for me, it's got to be. I'm I love rugby as uh, per will, um, but it's the women's game that really excites me, and I'm really looking forward to the women's Six Nations now. We have a big game, England Ireland at Twickenham. You know, it's a really hard task to try and. Get, you know, beat the figures we got last time, it was 58,000. But it's going to be a brilliant game. But I'm also just looking forward to seeing who turns up. So there'll be O2 are going to bring a big music out to the party. The RFU are going to make sure there's loads of food trucks and a really great vibe. And frankly, we don't really know who will turn up. We're going to market and see what happens. And we know everyone comes from across the country. And I think that's what I'm really excited about. This is only the second time the Red Roses have had a solo game at Twickenham. And I'm curious to see, you know, are we bringing the same people back or are they going to be, you know, is this audience changing? So that for me, I should be watching, I'll be watching the pitch, but obviously that weird marketing person staring at the crowd as well. And it's, is it, it's on a different day, is it? It's not, they're not doing it on the same day as the men's. No, we, we had Super Saturday last year, um, which is obviously, I mean, it's an iconic, in the men's game, you know, it's always been built up as this iconic moment. And, you know, the French women's team are fantastic and they have actually, the French were beating stadium records and women's rugby long before we were. You know, they have a really strong following out there. So it's a bit more different because probably the, the support for women from an island point of view, from the union and probably from the fans hasn't been as strong. So I don't know if we'll have that natural contingent coming in from the away fans. But God blimey, the Red Roses fans, they are a passionate bunch um, and quite mixed, which is really exciting. And they come from all over the country. They're not local to London either, which um, surprised us, to be honest, from the first game. Brilliant. Will? Yeah, uh, for me, so obviously Olympics, really exciting because we're going to be over there doing loads of work. So we're, we're delivering a few different 
houses for, for different countries and partners. But from a personal point of view, it's got to be the Euros football. The England men's team is, is a brilliant team who've got there or thereabouts. And they, I mean, they've got to deliver this this time. This is it. It's coming home. <laughs> he said it. He said it. <laughs> Melissa? I think for me, clearly, you know, the Olympics is going to be wonderful. The Euros are going to be wonderful. But just generally within sport, for me, it's the, um, you know, that collective power of sport to tell these stories, to have, you know, villains and heroes and not knowing what's going to come up. You know, it's the it's the jeopardy of what will or won't or nearly did. And, you know, you look, look back to last year and the Women's World Cup and, you know, what happened with the, you know, Spanish team. And that became, you know, a, a huge talking point that I think shifted the dial a significant amount. It was a terrible thing that happened, but it created an awful lot of positive conversation and hopefully will drive change. So we never know what those moments are going to be, but I think it's super exciting and I can't wait to see what they are. Great stuff. Mine's, uh, mine's, bit niche actually I'm a big baseball fan and my New York Mets are coming over to play a London series in June so that's a that's a big one that and England winning the Euros. Have you got tickets Matt? I've got a potential source but I haven't actually got any sorted out yet. Uh, Melissa from Dark Horses thanks so much. Uh, Jen from MNC Saatchi and Will from 160 over 90 thanks so much for joining us today we really enjoyed our chat. Thanks, thanks Matt. Guys. Thanks so much Matt. The deadline for entry for this year's Purpose Awards, EMEA, brought to you by Campaign, PR Week and Third Sector, is just a couple of weeks away on Thursday 7th of March. The awards recognise campaigns that use creative ideas successfully to further positive causes and are open to agencies, brands, public sector bodies, charities and NGOs throughout the EMEA region. To enter, to buy tickets and for more information, visit purposeawards.co.uk. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager Navpal and to producer Till Owen. And also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye. Goodbye.